Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today we're talking with Shelton Johnson. Many of you will know him as an interpreter at Yosemite National Park who portrays Buffalo soldiers. I think you'll also learn that he's a poet, an author, a musician, as well as a fine interpreter. In fact, the music you heard at the start was him playing an original composition on an eagle bone flute. And you'll hear that at the end of today's podcast as well. It's great to see you, Shelton. It's been many years since we would run into each other at a national or international meeting. You're still at your park, Yosemite National Park, I, I take it? I'm still in Yosemite and Yosemite is still in me. <laughs> That's the good news. That's It's yeah. great to feel like you're a part of the entire scenery. That's um, right. I want to back up in your life a little bit. It seems to me from what I've read in background that you uh, were born in Detroit, but you actually got around quite a bit as a young person, and maybe that helped fashion your interest in what you're doing. I would say it's got it's even beyond that. Um, I grew up in inner city Detroit. I'm African-American, Cherokee, Seminole, Choctaw, uh, and Irish. And uh, but I grew up in an urban inner city environment, and I would have that would have resulted in me being an inner city urban adult. But because I spent a great deal of time overseas with my father, who had a military career, uh, my kindergarten was spent in Germany, and I was in first grade in London, England. And so my earliest memories have nothing to do with Detroit or Michigan or even the United States. My earliest memories are in are of Germany, and I was in Germany when President Kennedy made his uh, famous speech there. You know, when he said, Ich bin ein Berliner, I was, that's, we, we were there at the time. And we were also there when he was assassinated. So it was a, um, a memory that I can't lose because it pulls me to another country, which I shouldn't have anything to, to do with when you think about it, but that country and the natural landscape, meaning Berchtesgaden and, and Black Forest had everything to do with my eventual career as a national park ranger because I had that early exposure to wilderness, to mountains, and I never forgot it, and those mountains never forgot me. <laughs> well, and you certainly have spent a lot of time in them in more recent years. Uh, yes. I, another early experience you had, I read about that I didn't know this, uh, or I would have had a conversation many years ago about it. You were in the Peace Corps. Yes, I was a seventh grade English teacher in Kakata, Liberia, West Africa. And I was there for about three months during that period where you're in training. I was there long enough to go to my my site, which was called, uh, which is called a little village called Carlique, uh, near the town of Harper. And uh, unfortunately, I, I contracted both malaria and amoebic dysentery at the same time. So even though Joseph Conrad never studied me for his heart of darkness, <laughs> I basically experienced uh, what he was writing about. It was literally uh, a trip into the unknown. It was uh, a visceral experience, a painful experience a psychologically traumatic experience, but at the same time, I never felt such connection and kinship with the landscape around me. I mean, I have to say that it's one thing about West Africa that's different from any other place that I've ever lived. You live in that space, but that environment also lives in you. And everything I touched from a doorknob to a wall, any surface had something on it that was alive that wasn't there before. So it was a, definitely a profound experience. Uh, we've spent a fair amount of time in East Africa, never been to West Africa. But I, I have thought I had malaria a time or two, and I confess I did not, and I'm glad I did not, mm -hmm. and I'm sorry that you went through that, but uh, we learn from everything that happens to us, so 
Uh, we're glad you're here and it, it didn't have any greater long-term impact. I read that you're an English major originally in college, right? Yeah, my, my BA is in English literature. And my I was in a Master of Fine Arts program at the same institution, the University of Michigan, in poetry. So English lit and uh, poetry um, are two of the, uh, the pleasures of my life in terms of both the cerebral pleasures and the emotional pleasures as well. I've always been bookish because of, as a military kid, you spend a lot of time by yourself sometimes in travel status. I, my memories of my childhood often involve looking out through the windshield of a vehicle or the side window of a vehicle or being in a plane. And so when you can actually go from that environment internally and open up a book, whether that book might be Charles Dickens, whether it might be Isaac Isimov, a science fiction work, it was a way of pulling me out of that environment and keeping me centered because every, it seems like every year or so we move someplace else. And so the rock that kept me in place, that kept me whole to a great degree has always been books, whether it's Jules Verne or H.G. Wells or Langston Hughes, they've always kept me centered. That's great. And it's a great background for what you do, really, uh, because you've had to do a lot of deep reading to kind of interpret the unique cultural situation. I, uh, your fame in our profession for the Buffalo Soldier stories, how did that develop? How did you get into that? It was before well, it's just, uh, your park right now, right? Well, I mean, uh, the Buffalo Soldier history was specific to Yosemite, even though it's, it's generic to the National Park Service as a whole, in terms of that is a history that speaks to African-Americans protecting national parks before the creation of the National Park Service. That gives it that national character to it. But because I have a background in literature and music, the lens through which I, I, I perceived that history was different. I looked at it through the lens of an artist, not necessarily the lens of a historian. And so when I developed my character, I looked at it from the point of view of theater, not from the point of view of Freeman Tilden, yeah. because I knew that the best way to convey a story that makes people uncomfortable, the first step is to become comfortable myself with a history of race, with a history of class, with segregation, with Jim Crow. All that subject matter is a, thir is a thir literal third rail that is electrifying. So to avoid electrocution, I had to become comfortable with my own discomfort. And I think that's key to any conversation or communication about race, is that the person telling the story has to be comfortable enough in the, in the touching of that story, that gravity that's pulling them there to be able to tell it in a way that's convincing and truthful. Powerful idea. I, I am reading your novel right now, Glory Land. And I will tell you, I just read the part about him observing the hanging of a gentleman from his community. And uh, I was shattered by it, reading it. And I'm aware yeah. the interpretation doesn't always make you feel good. Sometimes it's intended to get you out of your skin and to think about somebody else's life and the tragedies that happen. And uh, you create that discomfort really well in writing. And I, mm -hmm. and I see a value to it. I, I've told people, I, when I went to Anne Frank's house in Amsterdam, I left in tears, but it, it wasn't unhappiness. It was yeah, yeah. A, a little bit of understanding. You can't have a complete understanding of the tragedy so many people have lived through. You know, and I would say that sometimes there's, there's a tendency for us to want to ameliorate the tragedies of the past. But by doing so, we actually take the truthfulness of that history, we remove it. And I think it's always better to live with an uncomfortable truth than a comfortable lie. And so for me, it was a, it was a, it was a matter of actually communicating 
the core of that story, not so much the pain of the story, but the joy that could be part of a means of dealing with that suffering. I mean, I think that if you look at any culture, whether you look at people who are Jewish, you look at people who have been, uh, that are African-American or people of color in general, women, anyone or any group that has dealt with some sort of level of persecution, they have to figure out some sort of defensive mechanism that's rooted in spirit, that's rooted in that sense that thou shalt not take away my humanity. I will hold on to it to the death and even beyond death. And so for me, looking at that history, I was looking at my family story because I didn't just see nameless men on a horse or in horses in a photograph. I saw my father and my father's generation and my, my grandmother and my grandmother's generation. And that gave me kind of a, a compass to steer by as I began to navigate through this very uncomfortable terrain where the slightest misstep could result in something explosive. I mean, that's just how virulently racist that time period was. Well, in your character, Elijah Yancey, comes from uh, South Carolina, I believe, Spartanburg. Where? What's the connection? That's to, correct. Because you're from Detroit. What's the connection to Spartanburg? My father was born and raised in Spartanburg. And, and the thing that I've learned about living history, yeah. See, the thing that I've learned about living history is that the less you have to lie, the more truthful your 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 presentation is going to be. And so, if you can graft onto that that fictionalized story that is rooted in history, if you can graft onto it your own personal story that somehow mirrors that, that history or is also rooted in that history, then it doesn't come across as acting. It doesn't come across as a fancy that you're, you're communicating. It comes across as something real, something tangible. And that, yet that person that's experiencing and communicating that pain is not, is not expressing pain, but joy. I mean, I think that that is one of the greatest additives to suffering is the communication of joy itself. If you communicate happiness, joy, things that make you feel good, it is a way of a, like a bomb that you can put in your own spirit so that you can deal with the difficult difficulties that, that surround you that are part of your life. Did you run across things in the Buffalo Soldier stories that surprised you, that took you to new places in understanding your own life? Uh, not so much. It was actually the opposite. Um, my own family history gave me a clearer lens through which to peer into that story because I could see what's not was that, that which was not so obvious. I could hear that which was not necessarily audible. I could touch that which was not necessarily tangible. And so it was so having that own my own personal history rooted in that same time period gave me a doorway that I could walk through safely. And yet at the same time, experience at least at some level what they may have experienced. And I think that's one of the things that's been the, the most challenging to communicate, just how virulently racist it was around that time period. I mean, the historian Rayford Logan says that the nadir of the African-American experience, the lowest point in our history was around 1901. And when I, when I read that, I remember just thinking, well, the Buffalo Soldier history in Yosemite is 1899, 1903, and 1904. So then I'm thinking of Charles Dickens when he wrote, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I'm thinking that was absolutely true for that time period. It's it's post reconstruction. It's the it, slavery supposedly is over, but at the same time, you have the rise of all these white supremacy groups trying to keep African Americans in the social ladder, the position they occupied prior to the Civil War. And so it was that push pull, that dynamic, that literally on the surface things were better, but beneath the surface it was same as it ever was. <laughs> you know. And, and, and what, could, what would that do to someone's 
mental state, to their spiritual state, their psychological state, that kind of trauma that can be passed down from generation to generation. And that's what I tried to communicate. And I and while I was communicating it, I never had a, I never had a smile leave my face. I was always smiling because it was a so smile at that time for an African-American was a means of self-defense. Sure. You know, it was arm, it was armor and wow. making light of something. Yeah. Making light of something that was very dark was a kind of way of saying you cannot destroy me. I, I, you cannot take away my humanity. And uh, and all of that just sort of naturally began to gravitate around that nucleus of the character that I created, who I perceived as being real. And that's why it became real to the audience. I never saw it as a fictional person. I saw that individual as a real human being. I think people know who you are and your character because of the Ken Burns uh, series to some degree. How did that happen? Because that's a connection most people will, will never have the joy of, of making is getting in a major documentary series that literally, I, I hope, well, changed the way people see national parks. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It came about by happenstance. I was asked by the superintendent to present my Buffalo Soldier program to a special group of dignitaries who were visiting Yosemite National Park. I mean, there was a lieutenant governor was there. There were all these folks who had high office of some kind or, or other. And what unbeknownst to me, the person that was also in that group, who was the honorary chair, I think at that point of the national, may have been at the National Park Foundation, it was Dayton Duncan. And it was Dayton's idea to create a national park film. And of course, his partner, which I didn't know at the time, was and is Ken Burns. So I was in this wonderful position of, of literally um, performing my my Buffalo Soldier narrative in front of a person who would be extremely interested in using that material in a film that had not yet uh, been been released. So it's the best kind of audition when you're not even aware that you're auditioning. All you're doing is you do what you what you're supposed to do. You, you you're trying to grip the audience. You're trying to galvanize them, electrify them with this history because there's so much of this history that is subtle, and there's so much of this history that is the opposite of subtlety. It is literally like touching that third rail because how do you talk about race? How do you talk about class? How do you talk about gender issues in a society that still has not reckoned fully with what those things actually mean? Race is still part of America. Uh, genocide, the history of genocide, that still is pervasive and part of the, the foundation of what America is with the, with the indigenous people. You can't look the other way. You have to look squarely at something and be able to touch it, touch that third rail of electricity, get the feel of it before you can use that negativity, transform it into something positive and, turning it, and turn it into theater. That's the fuel. You know, gasoline is flammable. Racism, slavery, genocide is yeah. flammable. But that means it's energetic. And use that energy to add a little bit of humor to it and turn it into something that's combustible, but it doesn't destroy the person who's telling the story, nor does it destroy the audience. Uh, James Lowen, the guy who wrote the books about lies our history teacher taught us, saying mm -hmm. that yeah. uh, too often we've picked a story we're more comfortable with and told it for decades. And I That's think right. yeah. those areas that we have simply pretended it was less or that it didn't happen or that it didn't create the incredible suffering and harm. Um, I believe you even gained a wider audience because of a couple of ladies that visited you in a campground uh, related to the Ken Burns series. Who was that? Well, you know, I, I've often thought that I needed someone to help me amplify the message of inclusion, not just amplify the Buffalo Soldier history, which I think is nationally and internationally significant, not just for African-Americans, but people of African descent throughout the new world. It's very significant. But I thought, 
what would be the best way of dealing with an untold story? Well, to tell it, but not just to tell it, tell it in such a way that it's amplified to every quarter, quarter of the world where people definitely, it's the, like, it's the opposite of something being suppressed, of someone being oppressed, it's, it's amplification. And from my point of view, the greatest stage for amplification at that time was the Oprah Winfrey show. So I wrote a letter to Oprah and I basically communicated to her that so few African-Americans understand or feel that national parks are part of their inheritance, that they own Yellowstone, they own Zion, they own Canyonlands. We never received that, uh, that, that communication. It was never inflected toward us. Yeah, we never got that memo, you know, that, that Grand Canyon was our property. And so I thought, who would be the best person to amplify that message? And at that point, the Oprah Winfrey Show was the number one talk show on planet Earth. It was shown in over 100 different countries. So if there was someone a specific individual that could amplify that message. It was Oprah Winfrey. So all I had to do was convince her to take this on. And so I wrote her a letter, but I knew it had to be a letter that was enthralling, that, that communicated what I wanted her to do and why I wanted her to do it, but also had that passion, that emotion in it so that she could feel that it was a cause. Once you communicate that sense of, of a cause, like the 60s was filled with so many causes, you know, the war against Vietnam or the, the, uh, the freedom for civil rights, women's liberation, all that's happening. And so I wanted to, her to feel that this was as much her cause as it was mine. And so I just really focused on the fact that it's a history that ties African-Americans to an idea that African-Americans themselves don't feel that they have any kind of historical connection to. It was the opposite of a belief system that was rooted in a falsehood, that African-Americans were protecting parks before there was a National Park Service. That's, that's profound. That is absolutely earth shattering. And so I figured if I wrote that in such a way to communicate that, of course, she's going to say yes, because I was naive. But it worked. It, it worked. And it worked to the level of her wanting to surprise me, because she probably was thinking, there's no way this park ranger in Yosemite is going to think that I was gonna, I'm going to do this. But I think that some of her producers and the folks that work with her had also seen me the year before in the Ken Burns film. So whoever opened up my, my letter may have actually seen the National Parks America's Best Idea. And they said, oh, this is the guy that was in the Ken Burns film. And I think that might have helped because when I was actually on her show, some of the folks in her, her group, her retinue, uh, said that, they, oh, we love what you said in the Ken Burns film. So I think that was the connection. And so did you know they were coming? No, no, I was I was absolutely in a state of shock. I had no idea. The park, she wanted to surprise me. The park went along with it. And so I had no idea that she was coming. I was told that a group of African-American women who were, were being sent courtesy of the Oprah Winfrey Show uh, to a spa. But instead of going to a spa, they were being sent, they were going on a camping trip to Yosemite. And so I'm thinking, oh my God, they think they're gonna to go to a spa and they're going camping. I was, I was thinking this is gonna be, and it's gonna be my fault, quote unquote. Yeah. You know, so I was really I, hook, line and sinker. I just took that in. I thought that was, that was gonna be the case until I'm there at the South entrance waiting for these five women to show up and I only see two women. And the woman that was in front looked vaguely familiar. And I said to myself, that woman looks just like Gail King. And I looked closer at that is Gail King. And then it hit me. If that's Gail King, and I turned to the left, and there she was. There was Oprah right okay. there. Yeah. So when you so when you sit when you see that episode in the beginning of that episode in that that meeting, you can see I, I look sort of like there's no emotion in my face at all. That's how I register shock. <laughs> there's oh. no emotion. You know, so I was completely in shock. 
and uh, but absolutely thrilled that she was there to amplify that message of inclusion. Sure, we put that, we put you in front of literally tens of millions of people instantly. That had to be a valued. Uh, I mean, I know from uh, previous conversations with you, I, I don't get any sense of personal ego about this. It's that champion of our our causes, our beliefs that we we need to bring uh, diversity into our parks as much as it is in our society. Yeah. And, uh, why do you think it's so important to connect African-Americans and people of color to our national parks? Uh, and I mean, here's a segue right here. But... Yeah, I think it's so important because national, I do believe with, all, with my heart and soul that national parks are America's best idea. And, um, and yet people of color and specifically African-Americans never received the memo that these places belong to them. There was never any, you know, you open up the mailbox, there's no note from the superintendent of the Grand Canyon or Zion or Yellowstone saying, hey, by the way, do you know you have an inheritance that you own the Grand Canyon? You own Zion, Yellowstone, Statue of Liberty is your monument. I mean, there was nothing like that that was communicated to, to my, my people, you know, my culture. And so I thought the best person to make that known, make that connection tangible was Oprah because so many people admired her and she was so influential and we needed someone who had that megaphone. I mean, every story that's hidden, every story that's forgotten needs, needs some means of amplification. And so you have to first find the right wavelength to communicate with the people you're trying to reach. And then you have to have the volume up to in, in order to amplify that message. And Oprah did both. She was on the same wavelength as, the, as African-Americans in general because of who she was, but she also had that means of amplification on a global level because it wasn't just the United States. I mean, her program was shown in over a hundred different countries. So people meet, all over the world. What's do you that? meet people now who mention those shows that they that they uh, were inspired to come out and visit Yosemite? Yeah, I still, I still meet them. But the thing that, that struck me about the universality or the global reach of Oprah was just the fact that I met people who were from China, who were from China in the park, but saw me on the Oprah show in China or saw me in um, Malaysia. I met, I met a, a family from Malaysia that had saw that Oprah Winfrey show in Malaysia. Uh, I met a gentleman from Chad in Africa who saw the Oprah Winfrey show in Africa, you know, because it's, it, it's more than just reaching African-Americans. It, it actually reached Africans in Africa. It reached people all throughout Europe and Asia. I mean, it was the number one talk show on planet earth. There was no greater megaphone and there has never been a greater megaphone for the amplification of an un untold story than the Oprah Winfrey show because of the power of that media. And so for me, when that happened, it was hallelujah. <laughs> you know, it was just a, a wonderful feeling that that forgotten untold story was now being amplified at the, at the highest possible level. When you first got involved in parks, did you ever look around and see another African-American and go, uh, there's somebody from my culture, my background, who's already here? Or did you feel like you were kind of the Lone Ranger? Well, it was a little bit of both. When I was in Yellowstone, I worked with Gilly, Dr. Gillian Bowser. And Gillian is African-American. And, um, and, and she, was, so she was the other African-American that was there. But she worked in resource management and science. And I worked as an insurance station ranger. So the two, we were in completely different theaters of, of park operations. But she knew I was there. And I knew that she was there which was still a very positive thing to know that there's someone who
who is of your culture that's in this unfamiliar place. I mean, think of a stranger in a strange land, Robert Heinlein, you know, yeah. you're in this completely, it's not just a, not just a new park, it's yeah. a completely new experience. And that experience being in, in Yellowstone, for me, that place of resonance was when I got off that bus at Mammoth Hot Springs and the bison was strolling by, that I immediately thought of Berchtesgaden. In, in, in Germany, because that was the last time I had been in a place that was that wild, was in Germany. So for me, the, that bell of resonance that was struck when I got off that bus in Mammoth Hot Springs in Yellowstone, it, what, what was echoed from it was Germany. So I've always felt this incredible connection to Germany, to Berchtesgaden, to the Black Forest, because that's where I woke up. That was the environment that woke up some part of myself that felt this kinship with the natural world that we all have as human beings, but that many of us have suppressed it, whether consciously or unconsciously. Some folks aren't comfortable being in wild open spaces. But when you think about it, everyone should be and feel that they're at home because we're primates. Do you feel like you're beginning to see more African-American young people come into park service? Are we, are we getting it done? It's, it's completely different now, Tim, because Tim, the, the thing that's important to keep in mind, when I became a park ranger, in 1987, and I started working in Yellowstone in 84 and 85 for the concession, there were very, very few African-Americans visiting the parks at that time. Now, in Yosemite, after post-Oprah, I don't see African-Americans literally every day, but I see them every other day or so. Whereas before, especially when I was in Yellowstone, it would be weeks and weeks before I would see another African-American that's visiting the park. But now it's more like days you know, or, or, or once a week or something like that. Um, but like just yesterday, I, I had a great conversation with an African-American woman who was visiting Yosemite for the first time. She had bought my book. I was signing her book. We were talking about uh, this effort to communicate that we all as African-Americans have an inheritance in our national parks, but we never receive the memo. But now's the time for us to accept that memo subliminally because it was heartfelt in its minutes, part of our democracy to embrace the park idea. Are your seasonal workers? Are your volunteers at all coming from uh, urban African-American communities or rural communities? But are we getting them involved in all of these other aspects of park experience? Well, I haven't met her yet. There, I have heard that there, one of our new seasonals here in Yosemite in interpretation is African-American, but I've not yet had the opportunity to meet her. So that's that's a very positive thing there because it's important for visitors to see African-Americans under the hat, to hear yeah. them tell the stories of the park, whether the stories are of flora, fauna, uh, geology, geography, natural history in general. Uh, it's important, not just what the story is, it's also just as important who is telling that story. And traditionally, it has not necessarily been people of color, but uh, that has changed immensely you know, over the last few decades or so. And I think that more and more people are becoming comfortable with their discomfort in that. And I think that uh, for, for managers, they're seeing the power of that. It's a, it's a great thing when you arrive in an unfamiliar place and you see someone there welcoming you that reminds you, that feels like family. Sure. That, 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 there's nothing that makes you feel more rooted than when a relation opens the door to paradise. Yeah, we've done some training with uh, people in Hawaii State Parks who are native Hawaiian or uh, mixed cultural background Hawaiian. And uh, they tell their story so well, it's so much preferable to hearing it from someone who's read it in a book, memorized it, doesn't feel that connection back to grandparents or to their personal life history. 
I've heard you say something about history detectives. What what do you mean by that? Well, I think that uh, the buff what the Buffalo Soldier history did for me, it made me recognize the the existence of untold stories, stories of women, stories of people of color that are there in the in the archival materials of many parks, but they have not necessarily been unearthed from that oblivion and then communicated to the public at large. And and I've always felt that if you if someone's a graduate student at a historically black college or like or, or a Native American college or or what have you, um, it would be a very powerful thing for them to be part of a team that could go from park to park and actually go through the archival materials of those parks and find, look for, discern those hidden histories that are there in many of our oldest and most famous parks. Because it's, it's not an act of outright racism or classism or sexism. It's, it's, it's a neglect that's not so benign. It's, it's people gravitating to stories that resonate for them. And if you're a Euro-American male, then the stories that resonate for you might be stories of Euro-American men. I mean, think of the, the, the Greek myth of Echo and Narcissus, and, Nar and Narcissus fell in love with his own reflection. To some degree, we all fall in love with our own reflection because the most important person in our lives is ourselves. And so someone that's there behind a desk that somehow looks like you, reminds you of relations, is it's just an easier connection. And that's why it's so important to, for the diversity in the parks to re reflect the changing diversity of the United States itself. Yeah, when a visitor shows up and the person at the entrance station looks like a relative, then they go to the visitor center and the person at the visitor center also looks like a relative. The person that checks them into the campsite looks like someone that's family, then it feels like family. And if it feels like family, then the park has at that point become a homecoming. And that's what I feel is so important that for everyone who visits a national park, it's a homecoming. Yeah, I think those untold stories are amazing. I, I've never forgotten, I was on the... Uh biosphere reserve board at Mammoth Caves many years ago when I was at Land Between the Lakes. And uh, they told the story of an enslaved man who led hikes in Mammoth Cave in those early years. And mm -hmm. he won his freedom by being such an effective guide. And I always thought, if we miss these kinds of stories, we're missing pieces of history that are, are vital because they are inspirational. They do uh, take us way beyond just the kind of the mainstream uh, story that gets told. You have said the right story at the right time can change the world. What does that mean to you? Well, it means to me is that so much of what, of what has happened in human history is tied to story, that we as primates are engineered to respond in a powerful way to a well-told tale. And it's not just history. It's something that's deeper than that. It's a, it's a narrative that's in the blood. It's a narrative that gets into the bones. It's, I mean, just think about all the aspects of storytelling. It's not just a book that you read. But to, a, to a great degree, narrative is in a film. Narrative is in a sculpture. Narrative is in a photograph. Narrative is a basket woven by indigenous people uh, here in the Sierra Nevada. There's so many different ways of defining narrative, but I think we are, as primates, hardwired to receive information from a story. And when you think about the, the most ancient of all arts, it's probably just a bunch of hominids sitting around a fire and an elder telling a story. There is nothing that is more innately human or humane than for us to be 
have a story told to us. And I don't know about you when you were a kid, but when I was a kid, sometimes my parents would, would tell me a story or my dad would talk about what it was like in South Carolina. And that's what I did for my wife and I, for our son. We, we read stories to him. It's something that is very powerful about just communicating through words a, a world that you can't see in yet. You can make it visible. You can make it tangible. You can make it audible. We're hardwired for narrative. Yeah, I I get accused of telling my dad's stories and my own stories over and over <laughs> again. One of the things that happens in your age, you don't always remember who you told the story to, but you're you're willing mm -hmm. to tell it again, and they are powerful. Yeah. I when I hear yeah. you say that, and I I realize what an incredible writer you are in uh, Gloryland. Is more of that in your future? That's that's what I plan on doing. Once the I hang up the ranger hat for good. Um, I plan to go back to where I was years ago when I was in, a graduate student at the University of Michigan in their MFA program in creative writing, and I plan on writing another novel. I really love the novel, the lo long-form narratives where people have the space and the time to really get immersed into a story. Short stories are great. Poetry is great. Short poems, haiku, they're wonderful as well, but sometimes you just feel like you want to just jump jump into a river that's warm and carries you off someplace and there's no fear of drowning just transport to a completely new world and i just love great long books like the lord of the rings you know I, I was so sad when i got to the last page of the lord of the rings because it was just a complete immersion into the secondary world that uh, transformed part of my childhood i just literally took me out of detroit you know to go to middle earth and i think that that's the power of books to take people out of where they're from and, and for a short or not so short period of time, immerse them in something completely new, completely new and yet profound at the same time. Yeah, I, uh, I had that same impact in my life. Uh, Lisa, my wife, Lisa Brochu, my wife and I wrote together a novel uh, in 2007 for young adults. And uh, the experience was one of putting some of our own stories in a setting where we were comfortable telling this story, but part of it is you hope it lives on beyond you. Uh, That's right. I I always like to talk about trees because we we have a coffee farm in Hawaii, and we talk about trees a lot. The poem that was written so many years ago, ago by Joyce Kilmer, you know, he says, "I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree." As a tree, yeah. But. Uh, Kilmer was sadly lost his life in World War One uh, as a young man in his late twenties, and so his poem has lived on a hundred years. Great ability to still inspire. When you say that when you retire, how do you hang up your hat? I I think of uh, I have so many friends that have been National Park Service Rangers, and they do eventually retire, but that's not an easy thing because you've enjoyed being in uniform, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You remember, as I said, I, I grew up seeing a, an elder, a parent wearing a uniform. So my dad was wearing an army uniform. He wore an Air Force uniform. So I became very comfortable with that. So when I first put on the Park Service Ranger uniform, to a great degree, I felt like I was following in my father's footsteps. And it was a good feeling. You know, when you're when you're on a trail, it's nice to know that a relation has walked the same trail or a similar trail ahead of you. So I felt that, that that I could add something to that uniform. I can do something with that uniform. And it felt comfortable in a way that uh, any other job that I've had hasn't felt. I mean, those other jobs were only jobs. 
but being a park ranger was a calling and I've always felt that. And I think that's the difference. Uh, when you have a job, you know, you can retire, you, you can you, you look forward to weekends, but when you have a calling, it's an opportunity to do something, to make a contribution that otherwise you might not be able to make. And it's something that's in the gut, it's in the spirit, it's in the heart. And, uh, you, and you get paid for it and you're surprised by that. I mean, I learned, I was paid to learn how to ride a horse because of this Buffalo soldier history. And I remember just being on horseback in Yosemite Valley thinking, I'm getting paid to do this. You know, um, that's, part of, that's part of that passion. That's part of that excitement. And I just wish that more young people would choose a, a calling, which is a choice that they have made at some level before they maybe were even born, as opposed to something that just puts food on the table. You know, because when you when you when you when something speaks to who you are as a human being, then the, the fact that you're getting paid for it, it almost feels like extra, you know, because you would do it for free. Well, in, in fact, I I look at your time in service and park service, and uh, age, and think you could have been a superintendent a long time ago, but you chose not to be. Uh, why did you not choose the career ladder that takes you to the top? I I didn't choose that because it meant leaving this history. You know, the thing that's important to keep in mind is that if, if the story had been received immediately with universal acclaim that how could this untold story be untold for so many generations, then I probably would have moved on. You know, I would have done what other folks would you know have done in their career. But it took, I put it this way, it took about 25 years to be an overnight success. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't immediate. I, you know, I just, it was just step by step. I developed a partnership with Scott Getham and the chief of media relations. He would start feeding me reporter, feeding to me reporters who were interested in what I was doing. And so it just, it fed on itself. It just kept building and gathering momentum until eventually, you know, it was the New York times a couple of times. And then it was in the front page of the LA times, you know, back in the early two thousands, but it grew just like a child. It's like, if that was my child, that story, it was in its infancy when I, when I was first exposed to it, it went through a period of, of, of that early childhood phase. It became an adolescent, it, it matured through time, it changed through time. So it was like grooming, a, grooming a, uh, preparing a kid to go out into the world, which is exactly how Charles Dickens thought of his books. But in my case, it wasn't a book, it was a play. It wasn't a play, it became a book. It wasn't a book nor a play, it became a film. Any means that I could find to amplify the story, I did. So I made a film with Sterling Johnson that was shown on PBS and KQED in San Francisco. I, had a, I started on as a stage play. Then the stage plays turned into a novel that was published by Sierra Club Books. And it wasn't so much that, I was just looking at all the different ways that I could help keep that story out there in the world. And that and that was my that was my goal was to literally bring back the dead in terms of their spirit and have them walk the earth again. Yeah, I think one of the things I love about what happened with the whole Inverness Oprah story is that you got into popular media, into mass media. I I love it that there's great interpreters that you will discover out in remote parks who maybe you don't know uh, are doing great work who amaze their audiences. But I think mm -hmm. when we manage to figure out how to get into a mass audience, we have a chance of amplifying everything we do. In fact, I, That's I right. people, we get paid in sunsets, but I heard you say something slightly different. You get paid in gasps. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's its own kind of currency. When you say something that makes people take in and do that, that is literally the definition of inspiration, the breathing in of spirit. So when someone, when I say something to someone that astonishes them and they do, I think there's some spirit 
that is there in the atmosphere that they have taken in. And to me, that is the that that is a great change that's afoot at that point. Um, so, and as an interpreter, you know, when you can create that look of wonder, generate that look of wonder in someone's face, that's that's better than a a tip, a twenty dollar bill, you know, because it's an exchange of spirit. And that means that that person's going to remember what you just said, and they'll never forget it. And that's, that's, I think, should be the goal of every interpreter, to say something that will stay with a visitor for the rest of their life. Yeah, I know. I, I get a great deal of joy out of occasional contact from somebody over Facebook or whatever that heard a program I did 45 years ago and say that that changed my life. Uh, I used to do snake programs. Mm -hmm. and I, I had a lady tell me that... Uh, she says, I raised my boys respecting snakes and not killing them because of a, as a 12 year old, I went to one of your programs and that's a mm -hmm. lot of reward for what we do. Uh, do you yeah. meet people yeah. uh, that you met very early in your career that come back to say hi? Yeah, it actually happened a few years ago. I, there was a woman in the visitor center, the Yosemite Valley Visitor Center, and she had her daughter with her and it was busy in the visitor centers. There were lots of folks there, but she kept bypassing the opportunity to speak to another ranger she just wanted to talk to me and uh the, and, and so i was helping folks and then at one point uh the ranger next to me was, was completely free and she said ma'am i can help you she says no i need to talk to him and so she definitely wanted to, to talk to me and then the visitor that i was helping they got their information and they were happy they were satisfied they walked away she came up and it turns out that i was her guide at lehman cave I gave her a tour of Lehman Cave in Gravius National Park when it was the newest national park in the country. She was a little girl with her parents and she remembered me playing my clarinet in Lehman Cave. That was one of the things that I added that was a little bit different because my background's in music. So I played flutes and I would play my clarinet in the cave. So it would give them a sense of terms of the acoustical properties of the cave. They can not just see the cave, but in the darkness, they could get the dimensions of it by just how the cave responded to the music of the clarinet that I was playing. And she never forgot that. And so she was, it must've been about six or seven at the time, but she remembered me and she never thought she'd ever see me again. And at some point while we, while I was at the desk talking, what I was saying and how I was saying it, she said she knew that I was the ranger. She remembered me, that I was the ranger that gave that program to her 20 years late earlier when she was a little girl. And so she wanted me to swear in her daughter as a junior ranger. Oh, that's wonderful. So that, and so that's, and, and she and she was, you know, she was probably at that point, late 20s, early 30s. But when I met her the first time in Great Basin National Park, she was just, she was like six or seven years old. But she remembered me from when she was a little girl, just from my voice. Tilden described interpretation as provocation. I think I, I like inspiration better only because provocation sounds a little like uh, you're trying to upset people. And yet I think- yeah. Occasionally, we do need to upset people. That's uh, right. I, th I think it, it ranges from provo provocation to inspiration. And mm -hmm. we, we sow that seed that germinates and that person goes out and, and thinks about what the experience they had with us. Uh, yeah. When you go to writing books and all of that, will you, will you keep contact with parks in some way? Is that a, a, a whole? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, and, and the reason, yeah, that's that's the planet. Some, whatever I book, whatever book I write in the future, at some point in it, there's going to be a national park there. 
And I, and I want to, you know, that's, that's, that, that, that to me, that's going to be a signature. It's like the Sheldon, when Sheldon writes a novel, it doesn't matter what it's about. Somehow the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone or Zion has some place in that, in that book, because it's a way of, for me to say thank you to what these environments, what these spaces have done for me. And I think it's important to communicate to the public, the reading public, that fact that that you know, when you when you enter a national park, that national park enters you. When you see it, it sees you. When you hear it, it hears you. When you touch it, it touches you, and it stays with you for the rest of your life. And so I, I just have to figure out exactly at what point I'm going to inflect it so that Zion's in there or Yellowstone's in there. But I think it's important to do that. It's my way of saying thank you for what the parks have done for me by making certain that they're going to be in every book that I write from this point on. Amazing. How many have you worked at? Uh, well, let's see. Yellowstone. I mean, Yellowstone was my first. And then uh, Washington, D.C., National Capital Parks East, and then Great Basin National Park, and then Yosemite. Yeah, so just, just yeah, just those four. Well, what about Lehman? Most of my career has been. Well, Great Lehman Cave is Great Basin National Park. Well, that's Great Basin. So, I didn't realize that. Yeah, okay. yeah. So it used to be Lehman Cave National Monument, and then... When that legislation was, it became Great Basin National Park. So yeah, Yellowstone. Oh, Yellowstone Grand Teton. I worked there as a concession employee at the Tetons. So Yellowstone Grand Teton, Washington D.C. National Capital Parks East, Great Basin National Park, and Yosemite. So I've worked at five. Do you will you stay in the West in retirement? Oh, I'm already here. I'm already in the house that I'm going to be in. <laughs> okay. so we already bought a, yeah. Be. Yeah, I'm already there. I can look around. I'm in the, I'm in that space right now because I only have about two years left. Let me say that I hope somehow young interpreters get to see you and meet you at some point, whether still in your park career or afterwards, because I think inspiration from others matter. Is there anybody who touched your life early on that just caused you to, uh, anybody that you were working with that's kind of said the right things and helped you see the future? Well, you know, every interpreter that I've worked with that was doing something great has inspired me. So there was a flutist here and a great interpreter at Twelmy Meadows named Margaret Eisler. And she was definitely uh, used the arts to communicate her messages of, of her love for Yosemite. Um, she, she performed with the Santa Barbara Sym Symphony Orchestra. So she was a great flutist. Um, Dean Shank was just obviously really passionate about history. And so I could see that passion when you talked about the past. It wasn't just a, relation, a relaying of dates and times, but you could feel that he really uh, felt emotionally that connection to the history, mostly the, the, the pioneer history in, in Yosemite, but it was real real for him. Um, when, I, when I was in Yellowstone, Gilly, Dr. Gillian Bowser, who was not a PhD at that point, but Gillian Bowser was the other African-American that was there. And it was very obvious to me, the same thing. She had that same passion. That's the thing I began to notice, people who worked in the parks, but it was more than just work. It was a calling. It was something that was had a spiritual dimension to it, a passion to it. And I've always found that those folks who are passionate about what they do always tend to be good at what they do because it's not just the mind, it's the heart and the spirit that's that's tied to it as well. So whatever I do after I retire, writing more books, uh, Yosemite will always be home. Yellowstone will always be home. Great Basin will always be home. Uh, all the parks that I've worked in, work there's still work wonders in me. And so that's a, that's a legacy in and of itself. I was shocked to learn that we actually have a tiny bit of overlap geographically and that you, you lived on the big island for a period of time. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I lived in uh, 46 Kuwakini Highway, Kealakekua, Kailua Kona. Never forgot that address. <laughs> I worked at the King Kamehameha in, in Kailua Kona. And uh, it was uh, just one winter, but it was a winter that uh, something Mark Twain said about the Hawaiian Islands that that the, he said something along the lines of the the scent of those flowers or orchids or whatever it was, he can still smell them 20 years later or something along those lines. And I, I think that there are some environments in this world that you inhabit, but they inhabit you. It's like when Hemingway referred to Paris as a movable feast, that you could take that nourishment with you wherever you go, close your eyes, and you're in the left bank of the sand, and there's Gertrude Stein, or there's F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know, there's Ford Maddox Ford who just walked through the door. I mean, um, he, he, it's there. It's like once you've been influenced by those spaces and those places, they, those spaces ironically inhabit you. They live in you as well. Those buildings and those structures are inside all of us. And, uh, and, and so the home is not just out there, home is within and you take it with you. And among all those untold stories, there's even a little piece of Buffalo Soldiers history for the Big Island. Oh yes, that's right, 25th Infantry. The, the Buffalo Soldiers were there in Hawaii and they built the first trail to the top of Mauna Loa. It's around between 1915, 1917. And they were, they were in Alaska, Klondike Gold Rush. Uh, Buffalo Soldiers were there as well. And they were in Glacier National Park before Glacier National Park became a national park. With the, if you look up the Ahern Expedition, uh, there was also some infantry soldiers or, that, that served in the area that would become Glacier National Park and one of the first explorations of that area. There's a lot of untold histories throughout the national park system, and many of them actually have African-Americans that are the protagonists of that sto those stories. So Alaska, Hawaii, Montana, I mean, who would think it, in Montana, it, before Glacier National Park was, was set aside, that there'd be African-American soldiers uh, in, in, engaged in some of the first explorations of that area. And there must be thousands of relatives of those African-American soldiers who served, who some of whom know the history and some of whom may be delighted to bump into you and learn that they had a relative that were the first people to explore some of those parks. Well, what you just what you just said is what is my, was my long-term goal. My long-term goal would be to someday hold a family reunion of the descendants of all the soldiers, African-American soldiers who served in both Yosemite and Sequoia. And so when you're looking at 500 soldiers, 500 men over 100 years ago, we're looking at thousands and yeah. thousands of descendants that have a connection, a visceral, emotional, physical connection to Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks, but they have no idea necessarily that their great-great-grandfather or their great-great-great-uncle served in the army in Yosemite or in Sequoia or at the city of San Francisco or Hawaii volcanoes or Skagway during the gold rush or Glacier National Park during the, you know, after the big burn or before the big burn, they have no idea of that legacy. And that's why those untold stories need to be told. They need to be disinterred and brought back to life. I always remember hearing uh, Gerard Baker speak when he was uh, superintendent, Mount Rushmore. The big hole. Yeah, Mount Rushmore, yeah. Uh, and uh, he's an imposing figure, a Native American, Hidatsa Mandan, and he talked about all of America was sacred to some Native person, to some people. That's right. And mm -hmm. we have all sorts of ground that perhaps is, is sacred to the Buffalo soldiers who served. I, when I said mm -hmm. they were the first people, they weren't the first people. The Native Americans were the first people everywhere. And that's right. That's right. Canada, they were the. Well, what you, 
Yeah. What you just reminded me of, uh, one of the great pleasures of being part of and working with Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan was working with Gerard. Oh, because because Gerard is in the National Parks of America's Best Idea, and he first worked with Ken and Dayton and the Lewis and Clark documentary. Oh, so I had I I had some wonderful experience. I mean, the big event in Central Park with Jose Feliciano and uh, I mean it was Jose Feliciano, Counting Crows, Allison Krauss, Union Station. Um, I'm backstage with all those folks, and there I and, and Gerard's back there. So I. I I just had a wonderful time just being around Gerard and it's not that common when I'm around someone who's taller than I am and bigger than I am. <laughs> you know, so he was just, he's just, a, was a, is a wonderful human being. It was just, it's just getting to know him was just one of the, the great experiences of my career. I uh, am thrilled that you're still there doing what you're doing and I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing Gloryland. And I hope if you get back to the Big Island, you'll come out and join us for lunch and uh, we'll tell our, our little coffee farm stories because we're, we're in total, <laughs> coffee country. But uh, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted. We, you know, you meet people professionally in the interpretive profession and know a little bit about what they do, but uh, you've taken me to new places. And uh, I hope a lot of young people who hear you and I chat, think about what a career it would be. And thank you for joining me on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. And I hope we do get to sit down and chat and have a cup of coffee one of these days. And tell a story. And tell a story. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Sheldon. It's been a pleasure, Tim. Thank, thank you very much. And uh, enjoy your time in the Big Island. I still, just like Twain said, I still dream of being there. It's an amazing, amazing place. It really is. Well, aloha. Aloha. Thanks for joining me and Shelton today. And this coming Friday, please join me when we'll be talking story with Valia Sturgiati, Training Coordinator for Interpret Europe. We'll all learn more about what that fine organization is doing with their membership and with interpretive training. If you'd like to take a course in interpretive planning from Lisa Brochu, she'll be offering that via Zoom August 21 to 24. And you can learn more about that at heartfeltassociates.com. Aloha. <laughs> <laughs>